This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks, Dr. Charles Parker, one more time here at Core Brain Journal. And one of the things we just really enjoy, this, this particular meeting is one that, you know, if you're driving, you're going to have to go back and listen to this thing when you get back home because the details in this meeting are so relevant for so many people. We've had the guest on, Maria Rickard Hung, before on CBJ072. Maria, thanks again for coming on board. I really appreciate it. Sure. She was talking about sensory processing disorder then, but the reason that this is such an important meeting is that there's a pervasive set of disorders that happen to children and indeed adults. A lot of times these are thought of as childhood disorders, but they happen to adults and children across the United States. They have to do with brain um, inflammation. And uh, Maria's written a book called Brain Under Attack. And the information in the book is fantastic. I'm reading it and enjoying it. And what we're going to do is we're going to hear about a number of disorders from PANS, P-A-N-S, which is uh, Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, PANDAS, which many of you heard before, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Strep Infections. We're going to give this to Maria and, and really have her break it down for us because there's more to it than that. And what's really quite exciting is she's written a great deal about it. She's very deep, deeply into it. And one of the things you'll enjoy when you get her book, I, I mean, you actually have to read her book. If you're a child psychiatrist, if you're a mother with a child that's had an acute deterioration that you can't figure out, that looks like something that you just have no idea, uh, Maria has some strong suggestions of what it is. And and the story, when you just open the first couple pages and see what's going on with the children that she's had the opportunity to consult with, and people are passing around the kid from doctor to doctor, and they just don't have any idea what they're doing. And it's the reason that we do these, these uh, interviews at Core Brain Journal, because it's exceedingly exciting to have somebody that has some answers for, for troublesome ideas and troublesome presentations. And I told Maria, I said, look, I'm so happy to talk to you because I'm a child psychiatrist. I'm board certified. I'm interested in immunity. I'm really very focused on immune conditions and autoimmune conditions. And yet the things that she's talking about in this book are not on my radar as much as they should be. And so we're really looking forward to it. So Maria, thank you very much again for coming on board. Sure. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. So she has the book. We have a number of links for other activities that she's involved in, including uh, epidemicanswers.org. We'll talk more about that later on. But let's get started by, Maria, telling us how you, the larger picture, how did you get into all this? And then when you tell us that, tell us, I think it'd be great if you could share a little bit about that first case that you have in the book, because I think something like that is a transformational opportunity for all of us. Right. So I guess I can tell you about my story of how I got involved with Please. this. 
please. Um, and it sort of goes back to my first book, which is Almost Autism, Recovering Kids from Sensory Processing Disorder. And what is typical is that uh, the older child will present with a neurodevelopmental disorder, and then the younger child may not be as affected uh, neurologically, it's seemingly, but they may have more immune disorders or behavioral disorders, um, things like that. And so that's how my younger son, even though I had been basically treating him the same way that I had my older son and doing a lot of the interventions with him, turned out that he had pans and pandas. And the reason I found out about that, I'm going to flip over to my story, which is in the book first, I guess. Okay, and then, please. Then we'll talk about Fiona's story. But my little guy was, I believe, four years old when he developed this. And he was always a happy kid. And when he was in preschool in the three years program, he was fine. But when he was in the four-year-old program, he wasn't fine. And I couldn't drop him off. I'd have to park the car in the parking lot of the preschool, walk him in. He would be screaming and crying the whole time. I'm thinking, what has gotten into him? I thought maybe he just didn't like his teachers. He didn't like the kids. I wasn't really sure. But it kind of continued on for many, many years, even to when he started in kindergarten. And he was fine at home-ish. Uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he, would, he would actually sort of let it out at school, which I was kind of surprised. And even his kindergarten teacher would say that, you know, he really had a problem controlling his, his temper and his ability to handle things sometimes, which I was kind of surprised about because it's, you know, at home, it would be all of a sudden we, he was walking, we were walking on eggshells around him because we couldn't say anything to him. He would get upset about everything. And then fast forward a few years, he was in fourth grade. And he went over to the neighbor's house to play and he came home and he was angry and he came and he slammed the front door and then he stomped upstairs and he slammed the door to his bedroom. And then he came down a half an hour later and he pulled out a big chunk of hair on top of his head. Wow. <laughs> thinking, what has gotten into you? Good grief. Yeah. So that's yeah. when my husband and I looked at each other and said, okay, there's really something else going on. And so thankfully we have a holistic pediatrician that we took him to. And she said, uh, let me run some tests. And she knows about these things. And I do too, but I just didn't know that that's what it looked like when we're talking about pans and pandas and these kinds of things. And so she ran a test for Epstein-Barr virus, for cytomegalovirus, for the anti-streptolysin titer, which checks for strep infection that's gone to the, that's an antibody of that. And then also for Lyme. And he tested positive for strep and also for Lyme. And then I took him to see Lauren Stone, who was one of the co-authors of the book. So the co-authors, besides myself, there's Beth Lambert, there's Lauren Stone, Roseanne Kapena-Hodge, and then Jennifer Jester-Kozik. And Lauren is a practitioner. She practices bioset, homotoxicology, those kinds of things. And so she tested him with electrodermal screening. And even before I had the blood test back from the pediatrician, she said he has Lyme and he has pandas. And that's exactly what the blood test said. Mm, so, mm. <laughs> and so it's all sort of this ever-evolving story of, as you probably hear, feeling the onion. And, you know, we're getting into deeper and deeper layers of the onion. And then the more I spoke about it with my colleagues at Epidemic Answers, we realized there's a whole epidemic going on of kids with these issues because yes. the typical statistic is that one in 200 kids have this. But when you speak to 
practitioners that really know kids with neurodevelopmental disorders, which are autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, and learning disabilities, some of them will say at least two-thirds of these kids have PANS and PANDAS. So PANS is sort of like the overarching umbrella, and that can include PANDAS, it can include Lyme disease, it can include any kind of pathogenic infection that has crossed the blood-brain barrier and caused all these weird kinds of symptoms. And so the symptoms can be things like OCD or excessive anxiety, separation anxiety, tics, ODD. You can have motor tics or coughing kind of tics or hair pulling or eyelash pulling, those kinds of things. You can have behavioral regression, developmental regression, academic regression, which is really big. So if all of a sudden your child just isn't doing well at school, that might be something to look into. Or if the handwriting starts to really just look really bad, <laughs> all of a sudden, that's something to look into. And the reason why we wrote the book is because like you talked about yourself, you're a practicing child psychiatrist, you don't know about this. Mm -hmm. And that's the horrible, terrible thing is that there are kids out there who are suffering or needlessly being put in, put on antipsychotic medication or being worse, being put into mental hospitals because they just can't control this infection in their brain and nobody's looking at it as an infection that has crossed into the brain. So there are, you know, it's slowly in the medical literature. It actually has been around since the 1990s, at least mm -hmm. as far as strep. But when I took a look at the medical literature, it's been in, since the 1960s where we're talking about things like Epstein-Barr virus affecting the brain and causing things like autism or being associated with autism. It's just not thought of that way. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this real quickly, because what a great introduction for any of us out there thinking about a child that's all of a sudden deteriorated. And I think the real pressing issue here is, is a certain measure of acuity. And the acuity is not responsive to ordinary medical intervention. I mean, it's really clear in your book that you had numerous people throwing different meds. Yeah. I say throwing advisedly because they were doing the best job they could. I mean, they're not, they're not capricious. They're doing what they're treating the child symptomatically and they're not dealing with the underlying issue. But let me just take one quick moment to break this issue and, and take a moment to look at your perspective and who you are as a person. You are so articulate, but you're not a medical doctor. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And you're, what are your criteria? Obviously, you've done a lot of work and you're hanging with some people who are in this, you know, in the epidemic organization, but what is your background? How did you come to this point? Yeah, I used to work on Wall Street, so fig go figure, right? Yeah. <laughs> I used to be an equity research sell-side analyst covering initially oil services stocks and then launched over to covering casinos and hotels and learning about the high yield side of things too, along with <laughs> stocks. So I was pretty good. But I quit when my first son was born and I was glad that I did because he developed all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. I wrote about a lot of those in the book, Almost Autism, where he developed hypotonia, he developed colic and projectile vomiting, had developmental delays, could not sit up at six months, crawled backwards at eight months. When he did crawl forwards, he crawled on his belly doing army crawling till he's 19 months old walked at 20 months developed sensory issues on top of that had asthma had allergies had eczema chronic constipation you know what else i'm trying to think it was like mm -hmm. 
what else could you throw at me? Right. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, I'm going to doctors left and right. And my kids were on 10 different medications mm-hmm. and it wasn't helping. <laughs> so I finally started to get answers when I suffered my own health problems because my older son was waking me up six times a night and I'm not a nice person when I get woken up that often. <laughs> and uh, your health suffers when you mm-hmm. have a lack of sleep. And so I developed all sorts of health problems. And I finally, through talking with one of my friends, she said, why don't you go see a naturopath? Mm-hmm. And I did. And he really opened my eyes to what's going on. And I thought, well, if this is affecting me in this way, what's going on with my sons? Especially because mm-hmm. I had heavy metal toxicity that was off the charts for mercury and for lead. And I'm thinking, if I have this, mm-hmm. what about my kids? And sure enough, they were extremely high as well. And so it just got me thinking <laughs> and into so, this world. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, I think I wanted to make sure we highlighted that. And I vaguely recall that from our previous conversation back in uh, 072. But I think the thing is really provocative and helpful here is we see this all the time. Anybody that's any kind of uh, practitioner that's looking at the variety of conditions that are really not explored thoroughly, we all respect the mothers who have done their homework. And you're a mother who's done an exceeding amount of homework. And what's really cool about your background is you're a data-driven individual who's looking at putting numbers together and data in a very constructive way. And I just want to take a moment to highlight that so that our audience could think about, here's the perspective of this person. And what it does, in a way, it brings a certain measure of uh, additional credibility to the situation because you have put your nose to the grindstone in looking at these. And your book is loaded with peer-reviewed evidence. It's not that she's coming at it from a lay person and maybe this, maybe that, but she's done her homework, friends. Mm -hmm. And when you go through the book, it's data after data after data after good, well-researched, peer-reviewed information. So I just wanted to highlight that for a moment because some of you may be saying, who is this woman? And let's go then take that next step. So we're now down into, this is a kind of macro look at these things. We have some conditions, friends, that are out there and that are not being uh, adequately diagnosed. We're, they're being partially diagnosed in a certain respect. I mean, Uh, most of us have some growing impression of immune system dysregulation. Honestly, I I, I say that with some reservation because the truth of the matter is so many people think any immunity is quackery. They have no understanding of immunity on any deeper level, especially as it applies to mind science. I mean, you know, they're going to tell you, and I'm a name dropper on this. You'll get a kick out of this, Marie. I mean, People in in my town, I'm in a small town here, and I mean, I've had people have uh, significant problems with with me, you know, psychiatrists talking about immunity. And I, so I name drop Alessio Faisano at Harvard on gluten freedom. He's the chairman of the research department on gluten and casein sensitivity as it relates to brain function. Right. And so I'm going to name drop a little bit. In fact, I'm doing what I can to get some street cred together so I can interview him on (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Because I think, you know, he's got a message that's very important and it's immunity driven. So having said that, so then let's talk more about where you went with that. And and let's talk a little bit about the book and that that first important 
series of events with that young child. Was it Fiona was the name? Fiona, yeah. It was just, for her, it was just, it's heartbreaking to read her story Mm -hmm. because she had had such a debilitating decline. She mostly was the food aversion, I think, for her, right? And so that can be one of the symptoms of pans, pandas, autoimmune encephalitis where it's not body dysmorphia like you're thinking about like oh i'm too fat or whatever it's like if i eat that kind of food i will die (laughs) Mm -hmm. for whatever reason that pathogen in the brain or as we like to point out in the book it's usually not one pathogen in the brain there are usually multiple pathogens so don't think that there's just one and that if you kill that bug that you're going to be okay which is the rabbit hole that a lot of physicians who do recognize these disorders tend to go down. They tend to look at just that one thing. But for her, she developed really, she lost a a lot of weight from not eating any food. She thought if she ate any kind of food that, or swallowed her saliva, that she would die. And so she had to be put on all kinds of medications for this. It just wasn't helping. She was seeing immunologists. She was bumped around from hospital to hospital, from doctor to doctor, Nobody really quite believed her, put on antibiotics. You know, some of it kind of helped, some of it didn't. And eventually she found a better combination that appeared to be working for her. It is immune driven. And like you said, the book, actually both of my books have a lot of peer reviewed medical research that are in them. And I think the thing is that a lot of practitioners and physicians just don't have the time to really read the journals that are coming out. That's actually what I like to do yeah, yeah. Is, to, is to just keep up with what's going on. And I put a lot on the Epidemic Answers website too. We have a lot of research that's on there. There's some really interesting cutting edge research that's going on as far as neuroimmunity, right? And so I think it was a few years ago that researchers discovered that there are immune system goes all the way into the brain and that's what are called glial cells, right? And so that's where you get how the what's going on in, in the gut affects the brain. It's not just the neurotransmitters, but it can be that too. But now as we've written in the book, Brain Under Attack, it's typically because there are blood-brain barrier breaches that are caused that allow the pathogens to get into the brain. And the reasons for those blood-brain barrier breaches are concussion, traumatic brain injury, you could have something like polysorbate 80, which is in most vaccines, and it actually does open up the blood-brain barrier. Antibiotics can do that. Gluten can do that as well. And you just got to, oh, and electromagnetic frequencies, including ultrasounds, which is kind of a scary thing. It's like, what do we do to, to the babies in utero? We don't even know it. And you just kind of assume that the baby is born that way. And there's no way that you could really know otherwise unless you do like a a test or a study that would look at people or kids that did have it and kids that didn't have it. So a long-term kind of study. But those are the kinds of things that can cause those blood-brain barrier breaches. And then you think about all of the things that our kids are exposed to on a daily basis. They're going to school. They got smart boards everywhere. They got Wi-Fi everywhere. You got it at school. These kids now have cell phones everywhere. That's not a good thing. It's becoming more and more documented in the medical literature that these things are causing blood-brain barrier breaches and things can get in there when that Mm. happens. That's Mm. not a good thing. I mean, it's amazing to just think about it. We have a couple people that we've interviewed here on Core Brain Journal regarding electromagnetic field radiation. And, Mm. you know, these things are so subtle. You know, they're so non-measurable on on the front end. I mean, they are measurable, but 
the first impulse is to think, hey, these are so insignificant because they're so small. But I think that's the germane point with what you're talking about is all of these very small complexities and have an interface with that very important blood-brain barrier breach mm -hmm. and create these inflammatory responses. Right. So tell me about this. So we got, we've got an acuity thing. It seems mm -hmm. to me, this is you educating me, of course, and I'm sure there are other people who will benefit from this, but the one type, uh, the PANS, is really kind of the more acute presentation, if I'm reading it correctly, and the PANDAS, more often than not, is this an incorrect way of typifying it? PANDAS is a more chronic, low-grade, it just keeps on going and it's unexplained. Do you see a difference regarding acute and chronic in those two conditions? I believe, and I'm, I should know this, but I don't quite know the definition between the two, but I want to say that most of them, or both of them, identified typically as being acute onset. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But what we are finding is that a lot of these cases are chronic, but mm -hmm. they're not getting caught because it's happening as a child is developing. And so it's really hard to know if a two-year-old has pans or pandas because it could just be toddler behavior, right? And so the typical ages for being diagnosed with these are between the ages of four and 13. It's definitely a pediatric population, but it can go down to maybe an age as low as one, but it would be harder to sort out. It's sort of like it's hard to diagnose a baby that has autism. Although I have a couple of people that I've worked with before that swear that their baby developed autism. You know, they're a mom. They see that kid day in and day out. They can see that the kid is not paying attention, that maybe they lost speech, those kinds of things. So as far as acute or chronic, you know, I, I want to say that the people who are educated more about this, they're probably looking more for the acute case. But I will say to you, please don't neglect the chronic kids. Because mm -hmm. like I said, you know, I think my son had this for five years at least. Mm. And it just wasn't caught because I really didn't have my head wrapped around it. Well, I'm looking forward to this other thing. And, I, um, and this is a little bit of an imposition with you. The uh, thing I'm going to ask, and I'm not really intentionally putting you on the spot in any potentially destructive way, but I mean, this is a, a curiosity, which just this little bit of conversation that we've had, mm -hmm. I'm sure is stimulating so many people to think, okay, well, how do you measure it? What do you do? How can you figure this out? How can you actually diagnose it other than just the behavioral diagnosis, which we all know mm -hmm. has so many variables associated with it? This is a deep conversation right now, but how does one actually make the diagnosis? It's a clinical diagnosis, and that's the hard part. <laughs> and if you've had any practitioners on here who have spoken about Lyme disease, they'll tell you the same thing. You could have all the tests in the world that say that they don't have it, yet all the symptoms that they have say that they do have it, right? So what you're looking for, you can, you can run tests like the tests that I was talking about or the Cunningham panel or, you know, different kinds of tests, and maybe they come out negative, but you want to really look at the symptoms. So it really comes down to working with a clinician who is very well versed in this area. And I would say that you don't want to just go to a Lyme literate doctor or a pandas literate doctor, because the pandas literate doctor is probably just going to be looking at strep. The Lyme literate doctor is just going to be looking for Lyme. They're not going to be looking for those other infections, yeah. including the viral infections, which I feel is a very important underlying issue as well that's just not being addressed. 
Wow. Okay. So what I'm going to ask you to do, which you probably have some resource and I haven't read your book entirely. And uh, if you say to me, Parker, what I want you to do is to get in there and pull this out of my book because it's in my book. <laughs> Just read the book. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm definitely reading it. I mean, I love the book. It's so well written. It's so interesting. You. You, you really make it. You feel like you're right there with everybody in question. But anyway, back to it. I'm thinking about a way to make this easy for people to apply out in the street and a series of tests that a person could do, laboratory tests, LabCorp, whatever. Here are the tests that we think that you really need to uh, screen a person for these conditions. Do you have something like that in the book? Yeah. So that would be like the antistreptolysin test that I was talking about, mm -hmm. or the Cunningham panel. You could have a Lyme test that's run. That's just a typical blood test that you can get through uh, LabCorp or Quest, I think, could do it. There's the, I don't know if I'm saying this right, so excuse me if I don't get it right, mm -hmm. but the DNA-B or DNA-ACE-B test. Those are probably some of the major tests that you would have run Okay. Um, just to look for markers and then also look for some of the viral markers. But just remember, these things don't always present in the blood. So <laughs> they may be bound up in the tissue, right? And Dietrich Klinghart talks about that. I don't know if you've had him on. No, I'd like to. The guy's a terrific guy. Very interesting yeah. guy. Yeah. So he talks about that a lot too, of how it's not necessarily going to be in the blood. And so a blood test wouldn't necessarily catch that. And that's, I think, part of the reason why this has to be a clinical diagnosis is you're really looking for a practitioner who's just very well versed in these kinds of symptoms. So they'll know what to do with it when they do do the test. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It brings you to the whole next thing because yeah. if you don't have that target recognition. Yes. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, right. that's what's going on in psychiatry anyway. I mean, basically, you know, you've got all these biologically related illnesses, you know, methylation, cryptopyrrole, copper, for example, just to name a couple quickies. And, you know, if you don't identify that imbalance, you can throw meds at that human being for the rest of their lives and miss the point. And that particular thing, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper, is more macro than what you're talking about. You're talking about an increased level of subtlety, and that may not be for you, but I think for the average person, the subtlety associated with these conditions that we're talking about is infinitely more. And I'm going to tell you, uh, listening audience, I'm going to pull down a PDF. I'm going to create a PDF from Maria's book, which is going to have all the references of the book and the whole situation. I'll put a, a PDF, not a lengthy PDF, because I don't have the time for it, but I'll do like a, a page, page and a half, something like that, two pages of the testing and the recommendations and so on from her book so you can pull that down and you can have something right there. I'll great. have that loaded on the show notes. Okay, great. So then let's talk a little bit while we're on it. Let's break down the whole issue of the autoimmune encephalitis, which to me is terribly interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. these other conditions, could you break down a little more? Is there a, a different presentation for that, that subset? And what does one do with that? I'm not a super expert on this because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> uh -huh. But I would say that if it's autoimmune encephalitis, that somebody has a diagnosis, you're probably talking more about an adult. Okay, okay. And so that was Suzanne Cahalan who wrote the book Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. She was a reporter with the New York Post, wrote about it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, same sort of issue. She's going crazy. She can't figure out what's going on, bouncing around from doctor to doctor. Nobody really understands. Yeah. But it's, it's really the same sort of mechanism that we're talking about, right? That there is a pathogen that is crossed into the brain that is attacking, it's typically glutamate receptors in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so you get an, a, an overabundance of glutamate, so you can get some neuroexcitotoxicity that's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get, <laughs> yeah, you're shaking your head, like all sorts of those weird symptoms, like anxiety and anger. And for kids on the spectrum, it can cause brain fog or just an inability to function well. And so that would be how it presents in an adult. But I think we're really talking about the same thing all in all, which is really an infection that has crossed into the brain Mm -hmm. and it's causing swelling of the brain because of the infection, right? And so that's where you get, and I don't know the difference between encephalitis and encephalopathy. I'm sorry, maybe you do. Uh, well, I, very I fine one's, just a, <laughs> one's just a macro word and the other one's a little more inflammatory word. But I mean, basically yeah. you have a condition and that condition is the uh, apathy and then the itis is, is the, the, yeah. Inflammation of, right? Uh, one of the ways that you can tell with a small child that this may be in fact going on is to look at the brain circ- or the head circumference percentile and to see if that percentile has increased over time. That is a really good indication that there's some kind of swelling going on in the brain. And there was an article written in Nature, the journal Nature, a few mm-hmm. years ago that talked about how kids with autism generally have that brain or that head circumference percentile increase before they're actually diagnosed with autism. So it tells you that the swelling and the inflammation is already going on and it's causing these symptoms. But, you know, as you know, it just takes a while for the kid to get diagnosed. That is terribly interesting. You know, uh, and when you actually think about it, and the other thing I find very interesting about it is in terms of how does one diagnose it? It's the uh, recognition of low-grade inflammatory problems separate and distinct from overt psychological problems. So what happens is, what I see in my office, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, just to make a quick disclaimer, but I get a tremendous amount of mileage, and I've said this to you probably in the previous interview because I say it all the time, in regards to bowel function. Because yes. w- when a person has and the Mayo Clinic has got this pretty well nailed down on transit time. Mm-hmm. And the Mayo Clinic has a, a, a protocol. And they measure it with some arcane, expensive substances. I'm sure I haven't really, don't remember what they were. but You can use beets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like corn. And, okay. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it should be 12 to 24 hours. And right. we see so many people who have like four times a day is going to be less than 12 hours. And every other day is going to be more than 24. I mean, just Mm -hmm. those symptoms alone, so many people deny them and say, I can handle it, it's not a problem. And I don't want to be a whiner and a complainer. And what are you going to Mm -hmm. do about it anyway? And then so many of those people do have refractory psychiatric conditions, whether they're in this more profound type of condition that that we're talking about with you with the disorders that are on the table in this particular conversation. Right. We see people who are just plain old refractory to antidepressants, plain old refractory to stimulants, plain can't get their sleep cycle squared away. Mm-hmm. And you can throw atypical antipsychotics at them. 
but because they're so internally inflamed, right. you're just chasing your tail out there in the woods. And you can get to it from a simple, what is your transit time? Yeah. And I find, and you probably find too, that most of these kids and adults are probably constipated, right? So they should be pooping at least once a day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as long as it's not diarrhea, pooping at least once a day. But you know, how common is it for you to speak with your patients and they'll say, oh, I go like every few days or so. And my doctor Mm -hmm. says it's okay. Not okay. (laughs) Not okay. That's where your immune system is, right? 70% of your immune system is. So we're really talking about a neuroimmune kind of neurodevelopmental thing going on here. And so one of the basic ways to heal and that a lot of parents have done taken into their own hands is actually to change their child's diet. And you can get so much mileage and so much improvement and you're going to have to do it anyway. And so that's where we have a lot of resources on our Epidemic Answers website to look into that and ways to change um, your child's diet, change lifestyle. Because I find that if you can get the kid to not be constipated anymore and to get a good night's sleep, that's like half the battle. That's a big deal. It is a a very big deal. I'm going to parenthetically say one quick thing since we're talking about poop. But Mm -hmm. I mean, so many people say, you know, I don't have a problem. I go every day. Mm -hmm. And yet they look malnourished talking to them. Yes. And uh, they're obviously, uh, there's some measure of, wow, they're thin and they look pale and something's yes. not right. Yes. And I, then the next question immediately following the number two question, first of all, I'm going to have them do the corn test because I got a whole hand out on that. And <laughs> we get so much mileage out of the corn test. But I say, well, let me ask you this. So you go once a day, do you sometimes feel like you ate dinner and very soon after that you can see it in the toilet? Mm-hmm. And that is another quick way of clarifying the passage time without necessarily doing a measure because it's, oh yeah, in fact, it's not digestive. Yeah, oh, well, now we're, we're on the same page immediately. And that's not a constipation per se. That's a rapid transit time, but that's still going to be directly related to inflammatory changes. Right. And one other thing I'd like to have you address, if you would, and I'm not, again, I'm, I don't know what you know. I know a little bit, so I'm not, there's no posturing on my part, but the mm-hmm. thing that I've heard a lot about is the uh, the way the cytokines involved in the inflammatory process actually interfere on the receptor sites with the neurotransmitters, and they actually block the neurotransmitters. Okay. On and they're pervasive. It could be GABA, it could be serotonin, dopamine, mm-hmm. and so as a result, if you're sending meds in there, which are neurotransmitter collectors. I call them chicken catchers, okay? They're, they're catching the neurotransmitter chickens, and you're in the chicken ranch, but the thing is, what's going on is those receptor sites have peanut butter on them, cytokine peanut butter. It just doesn't get through. <laughs> it just doesn't get through, and, you, and right. you just keep throwing things at them, and yeah, so that you have any thoughts about that? Did you been involved in all that cytokine business at all? Yeah, um, to some degree, but I find that it one of the best things to do is just to lower the overall level of inflammation in the body, right? Yeah, yeah. You can do that with food. You can do that with uh, lifestyle interventions. You can make sure that you're getting proper sleep like we talked about. There are lots of different kinds of therapies that can help with that. There's biofeedback that can really help. Yep. Uh, there's mm-hmm. neurofeedback, which one of my co-authors I think will be on your show soon. Good. Speaking about that, um, all sorts of different ways to lower 
inflammation. And, you know, in the case of a kid with neurodevelopmental disorder, you also have to look at those things that are filling up their bucket. So, you know, maybe they have visual processing order, uh, disorder or an auditory processing disorder or mm -hmm. retained primitive reflexes. It's, it's all putting stress on the body. Or um, you have a kid who has undiagnosed food sensitivities and intolerances, which if you're going to go to an allergist, they typically don't test for that. Um, yeah. They're only going to do the skin scratch test that mm -hmm. will look for IgE allergies, and they'll yes. kind of poo-poo the fact that maybe gluten and dairy you know, are affecting your child's health and immune system. And if, if it's affecting the immune system, then it is infecting the brain. You yourself have a cold right now, right? <laughs> and you know that if you have a cold, like your brain just doesn't work as well. It doesn't work right, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I'm so glad you said that because that IgG is such an important one that we think is absolutely essential in any of these conditions to because food sensitivity is so contributory and so uh, ubiquitous in yes. so many of these conditions. And uh, you get that IgG thing squared away. And, and what's funny is the debate that takes place once you realize that there's an IgG problem because there's so many people want to do the dance and, uh, you know, they have, and they prefer the foods that are a problem. Yes. Yeah, you get addicted to them. That's for sure. The problem is, is that, you know, you may go to a clinician or a physician and they'll poo-poo the like these sensitivities and intolerances and maybe they'll run a blood test but the blood tests are kind of in inconclusive for these yes. things we'll the best that. thing is actually for a person to do an elimination diet at home that's really mm -hmm. the gold standard do you feel better after you take these foods out of your diet does mm -hmm. your child seem to pay attention better have less mood swings like maybe their tummy doesn't hurt maybe they don't have headaches anymore or their rashes go away you know all sorts of somatic symptoms go away when you do this and that is the proof in the pudding that's a big deal yeah let's let's close with one additional thought which is i'm being somewhat manipulative in asking this question because i want to do what i can to encourage our audience to be both insightful and chase down the details, but more importantly than any of this, patient with outcomes. So let's talk about the outcome process and what your experience has been with the people that you've talked to regarding expectations. What do you think, if we get it right and we get these diagnoses correct, what do you see when you're starting to think about an individual who's relatively new to your group, uh, your environment, the people that you consult with, what kind of time does it take from your point of view to start to see some beneficial turnarounds? Well, if you're implementing like an elimination diet, you can see results within a month generally. You could just say, okay, we're just going to cut out the gluten and the dairy or whatever you think the offending foods may be and see immediate outcomes from that. As far as more of an overall general healing Generally, I see between one to two years of really hard work, of working on the immune system, getting the diet into shape, looking at those inflammatory markers that we talked about, and then addressing those pathogens, which, mm -hmm. like I said, not a lot of clinicians really understand. It could be a good one to two years, but in my case, and I've been working on this pretty hard, it's been 10 years that I've been working on this, and it's like layer after layer after layer of the onion, and it's just... Mm -hmm. 
I keep peeling off layers of the onion, so I don't know if there is an end to it. I think it has to be managed to some degree with better sleep, better health, better food, managing the immune system, all those kinds of things, and being very careful with EMFs, um, those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, you're taking your, and what you're encouraging there, of course, is the really, really important point of taking away the uh, pathogens, as it were. But I think the other thing that I have seen so much success with is really finding out what the imbalance is in doing supplements to actually rebuild the system. Right. Because the supplements are annoying. But mm-hmm. I think when we're more aggressive with supplements, I don't mean aggressive in terms of dosing strategies, but I mean aggressive in terms of recognizing them and treating them effectively, that people do turn around more quickly because oh, they yeah. have they have a my own experience with it is that they do better in in a six six month period of time, six months to a year. I'll tell you somebody that you might be interested in who we've interviewed, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, who would be very parallel to who the people you're talking to is uh, Dr. Zach Bush. Are you familiar with Dr. Zach Bush? I am, yes. He has the Restore supplement. Yeah, he has the Restore. And I'll tell you, we've had so much luck with that product because it really just builds that gut integrity. Boom. And the guy is such an interesting guy uh, in terms of his thoughtfulness, the way he manages people. We actually share, I sent a patient out to him from the beach here and he's out in Charlottesville. And, uh, you know, it's so much fun because we get a chance to kind of joke about what uh, Dr. Bush said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> come back. But I saw this girl who was really very significantly immune system challenged. She was really psychotic on milk. We knew that she had the bowel problem. We knew that she was highly irregular, maybe two, three times a week. And we went through all the rest of it. She was very significantly estrogen dominant. And what happened was we did all the work and ultimately got her on Restore. And it was really quite dramatic how quickly she turned around when she started the the Restore product, which really put together that gut integrity. It was uh, quite amazing. So I'm really happy to have an opportunity to share her with Dr. Bush. Because in fact, I just saw her last week. She's she's so much better. It's it's ridiculous. And wow. She, she's got a job. She's she's working. I mean, she was. Uh, I know. Actually, her mother had to escort her to the high school prom because she was so developmentally delayed. Oh no. But she's she's doing very well now, and she looks at me. She says, "I'm making good eye contact." <laughs> wow. And she says, "And I'm laughing in the right places." That's good. That's good. <laughs> That's awesome. That is, That's such a, a great story. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So anything else you think we should hit on here, Maria, before we wind up? Well, like I said, it's it's more of a, a managed kind of recovery. And mm-hmm. it's more of, um, there's not a silver bullet for it, right? Because there's not one thing that typically caused this. And so there's not one thing that will typically undo it. So there's not going to be a pill that you can take to yes. just make it go away. And one of the problems that I kind of see in the practitioners who do recognize it is that they typically will prescribe antibiotics, which I discussed before can be sort of a a carpet bombing approach (laughs) Mm -hmm. to things and really destroy the immune system. And so you may win the battle, but lose the war. And then if it continues and there's no uh, abatement in symptoms, then they may do IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin, 
Yes. It can be helpful for people. It's very expensive. It's invasive. And you are using somebody else's blood supply, which I'm not so cool with. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else is in other people's blood. They're not testing for anything these days, or they're not testing for everything. You can read Judy Mikovitz's book, Plague, uh, to learn more about that. Oh and it gosh. will scare the bejesus out of you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then there's plasmapheresis, which is probably the last resort kind of option for if you're going the typical Western mainstream kind of approach. So what I did with my kids was we used Lee Calden Lyme protocol herbal remedies. We also used very targeted supplements like you were talking about. So things like Pharmagaba, which is really helpful. But then we also used series homeopathy. And I don't know if you know a lot about homeopathy. A very little bit. I've interviewed one homeopathic individual. but Okay. So, so when you did that, it's microdosing encouraging the body to heal itself. Tell me a little more about that, if you will, please. Yeah, so homeopathy is based on the principle that like cures like. And if you want, I can give you an example of how I got into it. It was a few years ago, I had this really bad rash all over my body. Went to my doctor, she gave me steroids, it went away. But when I stopped taking the steroids six days later, the rash came back. I'm like, I can't live like this. It was poison ivy. Mm-hmm. And so I Googled <laughs> natural homeopathy remedy and uh-huh. up pops these little homeopathic pills. They're not pills, they're like pellets that you take and you can get them at Whole Foods or a health food store. And so I went down there and I got some. It's like eight rash went away in 15 minutes. The rash wow. went away in 15 minutes, which was wow. incredible. And I'm thinking, why am I taking steroids? Because these are dangerous, right? And they do a lot of damage, right? And so I learned more about homeopathy and it's basically a very, very minute amount of the substance that gives information to the body to let it know what to do. So as far as the homeopathic poison ivy remedy, it actually is a very, very tiny, infinitesimally small amount of poison ivy which sounds horrible like what i'm taking poison ivy Mm -hmm. but it works it's just enough to tell the body what to do with it and so it's the case with the series homeopathy that we did for for the lyme and for the strep for the epstein-barr virus for mycoplasma for bartonella there are many other different kinds it's a special kind of homeopathy i don't know if all homeopaths or naturopaths know about it Mm -hmm. so if you don't, please look into it because I think it could really help. I know it really helped our kids. I know it has helped other kids. It's kind of probably too far out there for a lot That's of okay. people. Say the phrase again because it's, uh, it's unfamiliar for me. Say that phrase again, please. Yeah, it's series homeopathy. Series, so okay. Yeah. S-E-R-I-E-S. And so the series refers to a box that has a series of uh, different frequencies of that pathogen. And so you'll have 10 vials in there that are labeled one through 10. Oh, and uh-huh. you take number one on the first day, you take number two on the fourth day, you take number three, you know, four days after that. It's a series. And then you, yeah. you get another box and it's the same series, but you take it in reverse order. And so you're just kind of climbing down. And then for some of them, they'll have, actually have a 1M and a 10M frequency that will be, if you're in Europe, they would actually consider it medication because it's it's extremely diluted, which is <laughs> mm-hmm. the funny thing about homeopathy is that the more diluted it is, the more powerful it is. And it's basically just an energetic frequency, which a lot of people will say, oh, that's complete quackery and woo-woo, but I'm yeah. telling you, it works. <laughs> so if it works, it works. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time because we have to start these conversations somewhere. 
and you know, just thinking about them and talking casually about them, it really is of great value to have an individual who's experienced these, who's seen them, who's a data-driven mother, woman who cares about what's going on and has had some success with these things. This is really, and does it from an informed point of view, and then has taken the time with almost autism Mm -hmm. and brain under attack to tell others, hey guys, here are some things that are useful for the general population. If you read the book and look at the details, there are some options. It's not just being lost in the woods. Right. Very so practical that, options, too. <laughs> well, really. I mean, I like the utilitarian value of the whole yeah. thing. That's the yeah. Deal. yeah, get your hands dirty and get in there and start to work and cook your own food, for starters, right? <laughs> well, Maria, thank you so much for coming on again. I'm looking forward to your colleague coming on board. If you think that there's something else that we should hit on that perhaps comes up that would be an interesting point, we value your input. And we'd love to hear from you again under any circumstances. Great. Thank Thank you. you for coming on again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.